Welcome to Imaginarium, an alternate history of art, a podcast where we delve into the most obscure parts of art history. Hello dear listeners, I'm your host, Neda, and in this podcast we try to shed light on less studied parts of the history of art and visual culture. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the representation of Ophelia in the world of art, and generally the reasons why Ophelia is still such a source of fascination, despite arguably not being the main character of the Shakespeare play Hamlet. Hamlet is one of the most known and performed plays across the world, even if one might not necessarily know or remember every single plot point. It is embedded nonetheless in the cultural consciousness to a point that it's almost omnipresent. And it might feel like Shakespearean works have always enjoyed that sort of popularity, which is not true, but since their return on the scene in the 19th century, it has not left the general culture. There is something to be said about how the writing of Shakespeare in itself is very much a masterpiece of literary talents, as he is able to paint a scene extremely vividly using only words and also let's not forget how the art of theatre is a world that is very much an interdisciplinary venture and relies not only on the suspension of disbelief of the crowd to believe the story that is happening on stage, but also the talent of the cast to give life to the words of the writer. The 19th century was one that was, excuse me, the expression, absolutely mad for the character of Ophelia and the archetype she represented. And this is what we're going to explore and discover, all the ways in which she is present in the landscape of visual arts. Before we truly get started, I want to take the time to put out some trigger warnings for this episode as we are going to be discussing mental illness, suicide and the idea of madness. So if for any reason at all these subjects are triggering to you, please just take care of yourself and I will see you next episode. And here we go. After all, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Hamlet is one of the most well-known Shakespeare plays, a story that has been staged times and times again, both by utterly amateur enthusiasts and isn't there something absolutely delightful and beautiful to see a high school play, which will often be the first time any of them will have ever dealt with this kind of material and... You know, I think everyone should do theater and art, even if you're exceedingly not good at it. It doesn't matter. It's just good for the soul. (laughs) And by professionals on the biggest stages of the world. Shakespeare, everyone knows the famous playwright. He is often cited as one of the best-selling authors along with the Bible and Agatha Christie in the whole entire world. 
when it comes to Shakespeare, unfortunately, it is the kind of author that you are like. There is no way his work is as good as everyone says it is, and is still relevant today. And then you read Shakespeare, and unfortunately, have to admit that you are wrong. That it is still good and still as relevant as it has always been, and that you have to understand why his work has maintained its relevancy through the centuries since they have been written. Countless titles that have been studied, performed, and adapted again and again and again. But today we'll focus on Ophelia and her numerous visual depictions. To try and unearth how the way this character and her scenes from the play are pictured influences our understanding of the story, but also of art. I'll just give some quick spoiler alerts for if you haven't read nor watched the play. I mean, it has been around for more than four hundred years now. However, I am aware that not everyone is familiar with the story, and it is not because something has been around for a long time that you might not want to experience it correctly. So consider yourself warned. This is a tale of the prince Hamlet's revenge against his uncle Claudius, who had killed his father and seized the throne of Denmark. It is a story of ghosts. Real and figurative, it is a story of several crises, personal and external, that plagued the young prince. And in the midst of this, Ophelia, our principal subject today, is living her own tragedy and fall into madness. Shakespeare's stories, whether the tragedies and the comedies. Have always been a huge inspiration to the world of art, especially since they were brought up again to the limelight during the 19th century, with the Romantics and the revival of interest toward the medieval and the Renaissance period, and that British desire to valorize their own cultural history. But I want to focus first and foremost on Ophelia. Who was driven to madness during the story and died by drowning? I just feel like there is so much to say about her, and so often I feel like, while her name is known, she is largely left out of the conversation. She is a tragic figure in the sidelines of Hamlet's story, captured the imagination of so many. The first time the Renaissance of Shakespeare works happened. Was during the late 18th century, during the age of the Romantics with a capital R and the early Gothic romances. I have already talked a bit about the history of the Gothic romances in episode three of the first season of this podcast. If you want a little refresher, or if you want to know more about it, but suffice to say that during this era of the sublime, of grand emotions and hugely extravagant feelings, passion was something that was supposed to submerge you completely and entirely, and that often ended badly. And thus, the tragedies of Shakespeare, with Romeo and Juliet's tragic suicides and Hamlet's death. 
The Drowning of Ophelia All these stories of murder, betrayal, and madness were simply right for the total context of the era. Shakespeare is such an overbearing presence on the general popular culture that his word seems almost innocuous. However, it has not always been the case. He was successful when he was alive, but it is only when he was brought back that the success became truly enduring. I do think that there is something to be said about Shakespeare being also a colonial expert that explains his continuing presence in culture, as he is one of the quintessential British authors. And the British Empire and British voice was one that reached far and wide. However, this is not the subject of the conversation today. However, there is something to be said about this, for sure. After all, when it comes to art, there is not only the art and the artist, but there is a third, lesser-known presence that is more active than we think. And it is the audience. Even a passive audience that simply looks and receives a work of art without participating in its inception will understand it and interpret it in a unique way. The act of looking is an extremely charged one. In John Bridger's Ways of Seeing, he says, and I quote, Men act and women appear. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relation of women to themselves. The surveyor of women herself is male, the surveyed is female. Thus she turns herself into an object of vision. A sight, unquote. This is a quote that truly reveals a lot about how women are represented in Western art and how the figure of the woman has been generally pictured and rarely in control of their own portrayal. Ophelia as one of the quintessential female archetypes is often portrayed in her visual representations posing and being turned into a beautiful vision of madness that does not illustrate the realities of her suffering. I mean, I'm using the word realities very loosely here as I think we can all agree that these are fictional characters we're talking about. And yet it says something about the general societal understanding of women going through periods of mental distress. After all, they had to be palatable in the end. They had to be easy to like and to empathize with. The emotions could not have too much complexity or depth to them, and God forbid it made a woman unattractive in any way, shape, or form. Ophelia by Robert Westall is a print that was in the dramatic works of Shakespeare that was edited by George Stevens in 1803. 
And this print is such a reflection of its time of that very gothic atmosphere and the way maybe Ophelia was understood as a gothic heroine in her own right, with a tragic ending that surely befits such a heroine. After all, there is something potent to the tragedy of a dotted heroine, the way she is driven by the tempest of her emotions and is walking outside only with a dress and with a lamp and fitting very much with the visual clothes of dotted romance. Ophelia is often pictured in art as young and an overly fragile woman with long hair and flowers and garlands as a sign of her connection with the natural world, which is often a symbol of femininity. It is Mother Nature, after all. There is a certain femininity to the way madness can be understood in media and stories. After all, the world hysterical is rarely one that is being assigned to men. And the character of Ophelia is one that does not take center stage in the story of Hamlet. She is a side character, living her life on the margins of the story and everyone else's lives. The few paintings of Ophelia during the first half of the 19th century are representations of Ophelia's sadness and gloominess and her as a gothic heroine. However, none of these paintings depict the moment of her death. None of these represent the moment of her drowning in the river. The river is still there, ostensibly, in the background, as a reminder of what is to come, of the tragedy that is going to happen. That Ophelia doesn't get to have a happy ending but they still shy away from directly mentioning the topic of her suicide. It is implied, it is a subtext, and yet it is not told to us the same way that the verses of Hamlet skirt around what truly happened with Ophelia's death, even though it is easy to read between the lines and understand the reality of her passing. When it comes to stories that stand the test of time, they are constantly reinterpreted through the social lens of the current time. Each generation needs to reckon with that work of art, which can be a way to understand the way history works as well, as it is constantly understood and analyzed through the current social and historical understanding. History always has two timelines, after all. The one it happens in, and the one we are currently in. So, from the Renaissance to the 19th century, there was a clear hierarchy when it came to fine arts in the Western world. So you have, in order, history paintings, which depict historical events, biblical events, and moments of great mythology, which was at the top of the chain. And then, portraiture, landscape, still life, 
And the last one would be genre paintings, which designated scenes of everyday life. So there was a very rigid understanding of the subjects that were acceptable as being represented in art. That started to get lots as the 19th century came to. Of course, that scale of art was still used and relevant within the circles of art academics and the higher sticklers of fine arts. However, it started to get looser as scenes from theater and fiction were suddenly becoming acceptable subjects for serious arts and paintings. And so it was not only restrained to biblical, historical, or mythological events to be taken seriously. I have to say that this type of painting was treated as the epitome of Western art. And thus often the ones managing to get exhibited at museums and artistic salons. It was about prestige and status and I will be talking a bit more in depth about this subject in an upcoming episode, so please keep that in mind. But we'll leave that subject for now. So the late 19th century had a fascination with beauty and it continues to permeate the way we understand media today. A lot of the stories and art only being kind to women once they are dead and immortalized in beauty and youth. It speaks to a culture that does not care about women when they're alive, but seeks to immortalize them in myth and legend once they are dead. Not that Marilyn Monroe is anywhere near as being similar to Ophelia, I mean... One of them is a real woman and the other is simply a character of fiction. However, it's true that a lot of people have treated Marilyn Monroe as if she was a fictional character in a story, denying her the complexity of her humanity to turn her into a figure of the sexy dame blonde instead of understanding her as a person. While she was always an extremely popular actress, It is her tragic death that made her larger than life and turned her into a symbol and thus depleted her of her humanity. Dead women in the 19th century are often women who are beautiful. Women who are dead can no longer do any wrong. And God knows that everything a woman can do is always drowned for criticism no matter what. When she is beautiful and dead, nothing can tarnish the image she projects. She is no longer a person. She is an object to be seen and adored and put on a pedestal. The woman in European painting, especially in earlier art pieces, is usually offered as a visual object to be seen and admired, both as to showcase her beauty. And this is what happens to Ophelia. Even at the moment of her death, she is represented peacefully, with a lack of gore and realism considering the fact that she is dead. But she is pictured as if she is sleeping. 
Of course, we cannot ignore that it is white womanhood that is treated that way and revered and admired in such a way. However, I do think that the idea of a beautiful dead woman does apply in general. Ophelia is an archetype. She is the young, virginal beauty who is driven to suicide and madness by the deaths of her beloved. And it is only in her deaths, with no risk of growing older or of her personality taking too much space, it is at that moment that she is absolutely and utterly perfect. The same way that beautiful insects or plants can be captured in amber or glass, the young woman is stuck eternally at that moment where she is deemed to be absolutely perfect. And there is something deeply troubling about this, I mean, the thought that women are only beautiful, perfect, and deemed worthy of respect as long as they are young, never age, look placid and calm and dead. It is about crystallizing that moment right before a woman becomes quote-unquote undesirable. Undesirable in the way she asks if a woman is deemed mad or hysterical. Or a woman who is getting older. This worship of youth is something that we still have to confront in our modern world. I have to say I'm one of them, unfortunately. It is difficult to be a woman in a world that prioritizes youth. And I'm not even anywhere near old and... Yet sometimes I do feel like I might be. I'm only in my late 20s at time of recording, but the amount of targeted advertisements to start doing fillers and botards as early as your early 20s is simply bunkers. We fear a woman that ages, that is confident in who she is, and yet... It is undeniable to me I am feeling way better in my skin now that I'm in my late 20s than I ever did when I was 18 or 19. And I am looking forward to growing older and wiser and feeling even better with myself as time goes on. There is definitely something to be said about who gets to be considered that way as a beautiful innocent beauty. After all, it is often young white women. But this is not, in my opinion, at least a privilege. She is revered, yes, but also, most importantly, she is dead. The Victorians' ideals of beauty, which were very much a focus on a natural face and good health, they sincerely somehow believed that your outer appearance reflected your inner beauty, so that if you were a beautiful person, this meant that you are inherently a good person. And on the flip side, if you were considered as ugly, had any sort of visual quirks that they considered as defects, this means that you, as a person, were not a good person and that your quote-unquote flaws were as much physical as moral. 
I mean, I don't think I need to tell you how messed up this is and how classist and absolutely despicable this way of thinking. But even today, beauty is very much easier to obtain if you're rich, especially with how normalized and common it is to be able to get procedures and tweets and how easily available products are. But in the Victorian era, any sort of visible cosmetics were frowned upon. There was a desire of cleanliness, not only of the body, but of the soul. The Victorian era is a very particular one. It lasts from the 1830s to the 1890s. And so whether we're talking about the early Victorians or the late Victorians, there is a different sort of culture, mindset, and society that we're talking about. The late Victorian knew something about the repression of every single feeling and impulse one could feel, and yet there was an incredible dark underbelly that was hidden from society. And so along with the mainstream's idea of health as beauty, There was also the weird standards of the mid to late Victorian era that veered towards what can only be called as tuberculosis chic. A woman was considered to be at the height of her beauty when she was pale and sickly, when she looked frail from the sickness that was plaguing her. There was an obsession with death and mortality that was extremely prevalent in art. It was the age of the occult and the beginning of the movements of spiritualism and the desire to communicate with ghosts and ghostly seances. Of the style of Edgar Allan Poe, who was one of the precursor of that specific flavor of the Victorian Gothic. So within these visions of femininity, somehow, in dying by way of drowning, Ophelia cemented herself as the ultimate show of femininity and beauty. During the 19th century, along with the rise of psychology and psychiatry, there was the rise of female madness and hysteria. Because the moment where a woman would dare to react to the world in a way that wasn't prim or proper or meek, she would be deemed as being hysterical. Women were often being trapped in a life that wasn't necessarily of their choosing. I don't ascribe to the idea that women only gained agency in the past 60 years. I fully believe that we have to give back the intelligence, agency, and resourcefulness of people born in the past to them. However, we will not start and pretend that life was easy for all women in this century's past. Because there is no denying that the way life was extremely harder and often there were few or almost no choices for them which must not have been easy at all and had extremely negative mental effects which must have led to anxiety, depression and other mental health problems even if they did not have uh, the right words for it. But before the advent of modern medicine 
any deviation from the norm and from what was expected was deemed as female hysteria and Ophelia being driven mad by Hamlet in the story before her tragic death is an example of that. The art becomes a study of the way the artists and the societal context had of the understanding of female mental health. This is very much within the Western world, of course. Why is the spectacle of a woman slowly descending into madness and destroying herself something we are looking in some sort of voyeuristic manner? Ophelia's behavior is distracted and erratic. And in the understanding of her, the female body and the presence of female insanity becomes the spectacle of everything that can turn wrong when there is no rationality. After all, it was understood that men were creatures of reasons, or something like that, and that women were creatures of emotions, or something of the sort. Uh, it's absolutely senseless, but you know. So the representation of female madness is something that is used to set women who do not conform to a certain standard apart and to punish them. Ophelia is a symbol of tragedy, of that moment where things can never truly go right. There is something about tragedies that ran into something deep into the human psyche, like a rat happening that we cannot take our eyes off of. And her death, as described by Gertrude, Hamlet's mother and the Queen of Denmark, is very poignant. What is interesting about the particular passage of her death is that it is a description of Ophelia's death. But this moment is happening offstage. It is being related to us, the audience to Queen Gertrude, and it is this description, very painterly and pictorial, written in such a visual language that truly captures the minds of the artists who heard it. It is a very striking image indeed, one that evokes a very specific kind of mood and feeling. It creates a picture without delving into the personal feelings, but showing only her actions and the image she projects. She is a vision, she is one with nature. And yet, even in this scene, she stays unknown to the audience. Even in these last moments of her life, she is somewhat being staged for an external observer. There is always the act of posing and having to appear beautiful. There is a certain wildness to some of the plays of Shakespeare that are set in the medieval era. I think this is very much part of the mystique of the Middle Ages. It feels like an era so foreign and mysterious to us. No matter where you position yourself in the world and what kind of culture and history you're studying, There is a certain wildness and fierceness to this era that feels very representative of the idea of magic, nature and myth. 
It stands as a sharp contrast to the subsequent eras from the very tidy Renaissance to the modern days. The medieval ages, however, were a huge source of inspiration for the artists of the 19th century. Whether it was the Romantics or the Brotherhood of the Pre-Raphaelites, the Pre-Raphaelites, who are a group of artists that got together during the mid-Victorian era, took a lot of inspiration from medieval and early Renaissance art. It was an art that thrived on sentimentality and emotions and we will actually be doing a deep dive on the art of the Pre-Raphaelites later this season, so please look forward to that as well. And this is why I will not be getting as much into them this time around, but I do want to mention the work of some of these artists in relationship to painting Ophelia. Because there are some extremely seminal works of art concerning this character. So John William Waterhouse had several paintings of Ophelia in his oeuvre. She was a subject that he came back to at least three times, with a painting in 1899, 1894, and in 1910, all following the same trajectory, and yet it is possible to see the progress not only in the artistic and formal characteristics of his pieces, but within the narratives of it. His paintings all represent Ophelia in the moments preceding her death or surrounded by nature and water, as she is lying down on the grass or sitting in a wooden lard near the river. Her hair is long and decorated with flowers, the colors of the Two earlier paintings are within a palette of greens and browns and touches of yellow, making it very harmonious and monochromatic. It is only that last and final depiction of her that Waterhouse departs from that formula, and it is the one where Ophelia, instead of being admired and looked at, is bravely advancing toward her destiny. She still has the long hair, the wild look on her face and flowers adorning her. But her vibrant blue dress contrasts with the strong dreams of the nature surrounding her. This piece feels visually and emotionally stronger than the two previous ones. Ophelia by John Everett Millais, painted in 1851-1852, was modelled by Elizabeth Sedol, lying in a bath in her dress as the model for this painting. She was one of the first muses and models of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but she was also the example of a new kind of beauty that was outside of the mainstream ideal. The beautiful woman of the Pre-Raphaelite's paintings looked wild and mysterious and had extremely strong features. Their hair would let loose and, while not conventionally beautiful for the times, they were still incredibly charming and magnetic. It was an imperfect sort of beauty, but one that fit well with the tenets of the Pre-Raphaelite movement. 
It is also important to note that it is this particular painting of Ophelia that is the one that truly marks the general imagination of this character. It is the one that is most often cited when it comes to Ophelia. And so these paintings were an embodiment of a certain shift and change in the way we think about her. Woman and Madness and the way it has been represented in art and various stories, I mean, you have this archetype of the beautiful young woman who is dead or the crazy woman who is living on the margins of society and of respectability. Because any woman who is suffering from mental health issues was considered too emotional and too much for society. The emotions of women were only ever accepted if they were palatable or pleasing. Any expression of true anger, sadness, or deviation from the role of the ideal mother or the woman that they conceived it were shunned and ignored. There is a painting in 1864 by George Frederick Waltz that I think is worth talking about because it does show a departure from the usual representations of Ophelia in the 19th century. It is not a very well-known piece. I only learned the way through researching this episode and it is one I think is very peculiar because it represents an Ophelia that is not as pretty or as made up as the others. Even though the paintings of Ophelia are representing a woman who is on the verge of suicide, she is always pretty, beautiful, polished and put together. Her hair is well brushed and shining, her face is luminous and serene, Even in madness and sadness, she looks conventionally beautiful and, for all the despair she is supposed to feel, she looks strong and attractive. George Frederick Waltz's Ophelia, though, is one that still looks ragged and tired. Her hair is unbrushed and she has some shadows under her eyes and... She looks, as the kids say, like she is going through it. What means Ophelia to us nowadays, anyway? Is she a figure that is still relevant in the popular culture and the general consciousness? I do say yes in so many ways that are invisible to us. The fact that this character has transcended its origin in the Shakespeare play to become an archetype of a very specific kind of character, but also of a certain type of girlhood, might I add. The figure of the Lolita, the Nymphette, and the Touquette, and all of these adjacent aesthetics that are very popular today, are all tangentially related to Ophelia. She is a symbol of a delicate sort of femininity that is still very much a tragic one. She is that symbol of youth of that extremely delicate period where every feeling feels transcendent and overwhelming and specifically of a youth that does not often make it to adulthood. 
The 19th century was an age of Ophelia's, where painters and artists constantly reprised this character in their paintings, and the understanding and representation of her evolved and changed as the years went on. Her struggles, emotions, and early demise were incredibly inspiring and in tune with the cultural changes of the era, as the Romantics gained traction in the late 18th century and early 19th century, and then getting wilder and more in touch with the mystery that the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood attached to the medieval era. Art can help us make sense of our society, and studying art history helps us not only make sense of past societies, but can help us understand ourselves in our current moment, because the lens through which we understand the past will always be the lens of the present. On this, my very darling listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of Imaginarium. I hope it was fun and we'll meet again next month for a new episode and a new deep dive into another lesser-known subject of art history. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash Otherwise, talk about it to anyone you think you will like it. And as the YouTubers say, like and subscribe and give us a good rating if you enjoyed it. As always, all the relevant images will also be on all of the social platforms at imaginarium underscore pod on Instagram as well as on Twitter. This podcast was written, narrated and produced by yours truly, Naja. I want to take this opportunity to thank my patrons, Meili, Chonli Tepechinuyan, Sam Hurst, Natalie Slaget, Jemison Hollybert, Jad, Amanen, and Carter J. Tane. Thank you all for the support you give this podcast. It means the absolute world to me. On this, I wish you all a very lovely day, evening, or night. And I hope to see you again very, very soon.